In 539 BC, the city of Babylon had grown to become the largest and most powerful city in the ancient world. Utterly impenetrable and so well fortified that under any siege by an attacking army, the city's residents could hold out comfortably for years, some say up to 20 years, in a battle of attrition with ample food and supplies effectively starving out their enemies. And running right through the center of that city was the great Euphrates River, deep and fast, with steep banks on either side, providing the residents with a constant supply of fresh water. And yet where the river entered and exited the city, there were these bronze gates spanning the gap in the walls that let the river pass through. But the gates also extended all the way down to the surface of the water so that the only way in by the river, if the gates were closed, would be under the water, which of course would be impossible because of the current and the depth, especially for any attacking army who would obviously be carrying weapons and other supplies. And of course, this was also the time of the Babylonian exile for God's people, the, the Jews who'd been taken to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar, who laid siege to Jerusalem, sacking the city and destroying the temple. And yet later in that very same year, one man and his army, a Persian general named Cyrus the Great, succeeded at doing what no one had previously thought possible. He conquered the great city of Babylon, extending his empire to become the largest the world had ever known. And there's some ancient records that we have now of this historic and famous event, one by the 5th century B.C. Greek historian Herodotus, who describes the manner in which Cyrus was able to take the city. He explains that Cyrus, after conquering several other kings and their kingdoms, came to Babylon. And seeing that the walls were unable to be breached, he divided up his army so as not to raise suspicions by the forces of Babylon watching from high atop the city walls, leaving most of his military just outside the city and marching the rest upstream, where he then proceeded to have his troops dig out a massive basin next to the river, and then channels from that basin to the river, stopping just short of the river itself. And then he waited. He waited until the night of a massive festival in Babylon when the Babylonians were drunk and celebrating all night, at which point he had his army dig the final few yards of trench into the river, diverting the waters of the Euphrates into that massive basin. And then as the river flowing through the city downstream, as it began to dry up, Cyrus and his military marched along the riverbed in thigh-deep water under the bronze gates, rapidly storming a set of inner gates of bronze which turned out to be inexplicably unlocked. They were never normally unlocked. But on that particular evening they were. Cyrus and his army came in, ultimately overthrowing the city in what was the most daringly improbable and yet lopsided victory of all time at that point in history. And then Cyrus... Now the king of the world's largest empire with all of his newly acquired and vast riches and resources after conquering Babylon began allowing the Jews after decades of captivity to return to Jerusalem, granting them permission to begin rebuilding the temple and their city. And interestingly, we have another account, another ancient record of this very same event that happens to be in the Bible. 
Isaiah chapter 44, verses 27 through chapter 45, verse 5, it says this. Who says to the deep, be dry? I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go therefore before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. So another detailed record of Cyrus's siege on Babylon, the drying up of the river, verse 27. Cyrus allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls of the city and the temple, verse 28. The description of Cyrus defeating other kings and kingdoms and then on to Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon as the Persians stormed the inner bronze gates which were unlocked in verses 1 and 2. The vast wealth and power that he accumulates in the process, verse 3. And then in verses 4 and 5 he says, For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me, I am the Lord. And there is no other besides me, there is no God. So after calling Cyrus by name throughout this account of the siege on Babylon, God takes credit for the entire affair. He also mentions that Cyrus doesn't know him. And the reason Cyrus doesn't know him, and the reason God takes credit for this great victory over Babylon, and also what makes this particular record of the fall of Babylon so unique, is the fact that it was written 150 years before Cyrus was born. 200 years before he overthrew Babylon. Now tell me again how the Bible cannot be trusted as a reliable source of truth. Seriously, what, what is the likelihood that this could have been written by a guy claiming to have a vision from God so he writes all about someone named Cyrus before Cyrus ever existed, describing with impeccable accuracy the events that would unfold 200 years later when this Cyrus in his late 50s would overthrow the most powerful kingdom in the world. What is the likelihood of Isaiah writing all of that down and it being perfectly accurate if he wasn't actually getting it from God? So for those who discount the validity of Scripture, you're telling me this crazy guy who claims to hear from God makes up a story about the fall of the one city on earth that was nearly impossible to overthrow, and he gets every detail correct down to the enemy leader's own name a century and a half before that leader was ever born. Come on. The fact of the matter is, over and over and over and over again, 
the Bible has proven itself to be a reliable and accurate source of truth. And if you were here last week, then you know that we spent our entire time together in the scriptures going over the evidence of the validity of the Bible in detail. So uh, we're not going to do that again today. But look, uh, if you were not here and you're struggling with the idea that the Bible is in fact the very words of God, then please go back and watch or listen to that message. And, and here's why it's so important that you do so. Because the Bible is what tells us about God. The Bible shows us his nature. The Bible reveals his character. The, the Bible demonstrates his power. The Bible illuminates his understanding. The Bible informs us of his plan for this world, his plan for our lives, and it shares the story of the unfathomable love that he has for you and for me. And so if your conception, as Alan Hirsch puts it in the video, if your perception of God uh, if your perception of him is based on anything other than what his own words say about him, then not only will you see God as something other than what he actually is, but you will also see yourself and other people as something other than what they actually are. Because the Bible says that he created all of this and all of us. And not just that he created us, but that he created all of us in his image. Do you have any idea how valuable that makes you and the people around you? And yet if you don't see God's creation, specifically yourself and others, as being knit together in our mother's womb by God himself, then the value that you assign to yourself and to others, the sanctity of your life and the lives of others, the beauty and wonder and awe with which we were all made and the very purpose of our existence and the existence of all of creation for that matter, all of that comes into question if you don't believe what the Bible says about who is responsible for all of this and all of us. And so last week we asked the question based on the first four words of the Bible, in the beginning God. We asked the question last week, what do you believe about God? And today, as we continue through the first two verses of the Bible, the next question that we really need to ask ourselves is, what do you believe about creation? Because the answer to that question ultimately determines how you view this earth. And most importantly, as far as creation is concerned, it determines how you view yourself and other human beings. We're going to go much deeper into this later in the chapter in a couple of weeks when we get specifically into the creation of mankind. But look, before we can do that, we need to establish first that God did in fact create all of this, that it, that it wasn't simply some kind of random accident that produced this earth and everything in it and all of us. Because you understand, actually as any good atheist who honestly believes in the religion of atheism, which is exactly what it is, by the way, as any true atheist will tell you, if there is no God responsible for all of this and for all of us, then none of this has any inherent meaning or intrinsic value whatsoever. It is all meaningless. If we're all just one giant accident of nature, in fact, if nature itself is an accident, then we have no inherent value or meaning, which of course profoundly changes the way you view the world and everyone in it. 
Author and scientist William Briggs said, if our lives are solely biology, then our lives have no meaning. There's a stronger, this is a stronger conclusion that you might think, for it follows that any meaning anybody ascribes to any event in life is itself meaningless. Any and all moral judgments are mere prejudice, the result of particular arrangements of chemicals operating under unbreakable physical laws. If all moral judgments are prejudiced, then everything anybody ever thinks or says is opinion, and it's forced opinion at that. All opinions are the result of chemicals pushing this way and that, forming unwilled patterns in brains under the control of nobody. If we are nothing but biology, there is no such thing as significance of any kind. This is because significance implies meaningful, and if all life is biology, then nothing is meaningful. Richard Dawkins, perhaps one of the most famous and celebrated atheists in modern history, puts it even more bluntly. He says, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Now, can you see how critically important it is that we settle this question within ourselves? What do you believe about creation? Because if you believe that all of this is random, then you have to admit that all of this and all of us are utterly devoid of any inherent value, meaning, or purpose, which then profoundly affects the way that you see yourself and other people. And so my prayer for our time in the Word of God today is that you will be able to answer this question definitively or at least at least be one step closer if you are at all uncertain about just exactly how all of this and how all of us got here. So let's uh, turn in our Bibles together then today to Genesis chapter 1 and we'll begin by simply reading verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The word Genesis means origin. So the book of Genesis is the book of origins. And so appropriately, right from the opening of the book, we have a clear and definitive explanation for how all of this and all of us got here, which is great, right? As, as long as you believe that what the Bible says is true. And again, uh, this is precisely what we covered last week. So understand that as we continue on in this series... Everything that we're discussing from this point out stands on the foundation that we established in the first sermon that the Bible is in fact the inerrant and infallible word of God. And if that is true, then the first and most important evidence that we have that all of this and all of us were created by God is scriptural evidence. And listen, it couldn't be any stronger. The word God in verse 1 in the Hebrew is Elohim, which specifically stresses the majesty and omnipotence, the all-powerful nature of God. It also happens to be what is called a uniplural noun, which means it is a plural name with a singular meaning. In other words, God is one. 
yet more than one, which explains why when Jesus was questioned by the religious Jews about his knowledge of Abraham, and he responded with, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. John 8, 58, the phrase, I am, ego and me in the Greek, the phrase that Jesus used to describe himself was the very same phrase used in the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament in Exodus 3, 14, where God identifies himself to Moses as I am who I am at the burning bush. In other words, by saying before Abraham was I am, Jesus was not only claiming to be eternally existent, he was also claiming to be the same God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. It's the same triune God in Genesis 1-1 who not only claims to have created the heavens and the earth, but is in fact the only being able to create anything. Okay, the word created in verse 1 is the Hebrew word bara. That word is only used in scripture to describe the work of Elohim. Why? Because only God can create. You see, man, we can fashion things. We can organize materials that already exist into more complex systems. We can form or shape materials already available into a new form. But we cannot create anything from nothing. Think about it. Everything that is new, everything that we make, we are actually making out of other things that already exist. If you build a house, you're using wood that came from trees, that came from seeds, that came from other trees that already exist. If you make a cake, you're making that cake from ingredients that already exist. You see, man cannot make anything out of nothing. Only God has ever made something out of nothing. Only God can call into existence something out of nothing. Only God can take that which previously did not exist and speak it into existence. There is no other being with that power or understanding or capability and yet that is but one of the unique descriptors of the God of the universe and it is one of the attributes that sets him apart from all of that which was created including all of us. Now still in verse 1, the Hebrew word for heaven, shamayim, which like Elohim is a plural noun, so it can be translated as either heaven or heavens, depending upon the context in which it is used. However, the word heaven in verse 1 is not referring to the stars of heaven, for instance. Those were created on the fourth day, as we'll see later. The word heaven, as it is used in verse 1, is actually referring to space and time itself. You see, it's one thing to think about God existing in space, in the expanse of space and time, just sort of floating around, hanging out with the angels, and then one day he decides to create all of this and all of us. But that's not what the Bible actually teaches. You see, before there was space and time, there was literally nothing. There was nothing but Elohim which means God didn't start with a blank canvas. He created the blank canvas first, 
God created space and time itself and then everything else after that. Honestly, it's, it's, almost, uh, it's almost too much for us to be able to comprehend, but that's what the Bible actually teaches, right? From the very first, we see this three-in-one, pre-existent, eternal, all-powerful, majestic God creating the heavens and the earth out of nothing. It's a stunning picture of how all of this and all of us got here. Which, by the way, is not only uh, historical evidence for why we exist and all of the, the profound implications that go <laughs> along with the fact that a pre-existent, eternal, all-powerful, majestic God would bother to take the time and effort to create you and me, right? You, you want to talk about inherent and intrinsic value. We'll get back to that in a bit. But listen, it's not just a, a historical lesson about why we exist. It is also a very powerful lesson about how we exist expressly because of the nature and ability of this God to make something out of nothing in our own lives today. You see, people get stuck. We get stuck in these situations in life all the time. Situations that seem hopeless because there doesn't appear to be any possible solution. And so we naturally look for ingredients or resources that already exist that we might be able to combine or fashion into a solution to whatever the problem is. Of course, because that's all that we can do. And yet sometimes, sometimes that simply isn't enough. Sometimes we can find ourselves in situations where what is needed in order for us to fashion a solution, it just isn't there. And look, when, when there are no viable options available to solve your problem, well, that's when life can seem pretty hopeless. <laughs> Which is one very important reason that you believe that Genesis 1-1 is true. Because if that very first verse of the Bible is true, then listen to me. Your situation is never, ever, 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 ever hopeless. Why? Because there's an all-powerful, eternal, pre-existent, majestic God who is able to make something out of nothing. In fact, that is exactly what he did for us through Jesus Christ. He made a way when there seemed to be no way. He created a solution for our sin where previously there was no solution. And do you understand that no matter how dire your circumstances may be in life, he is perfectly capable of making something out of nothing in your own life today. Romans 4.17 says that God gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Hebrews 11.3 says the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. When you're a child of God, your hope is never lost. Never. Because we belong to a God who specializes in making something out of nothing. Genesis 1.1. It's not just a history lesson. It is a verse, actually, that your very life depends upon and a verse that should give you hope even when your circumstances seem utterly hopeless. And yet the truth is it all comes down to whether or not you believe it. Do you believe that God is responsible for all of this and all of us? What do you believe? 
about creation. Let's keep reading verse 2. In fact, let's, let's read verses 1 and 2 together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So initially, the earth had no form. This was the creation of the basic elements of matter, which were later organized by God into the structure that we have now and into other material bodies. And darkness was over the face of the deep. Now look, we're not going to get too much into the gap theory today other than to say that there are people who believe that there was a huge gap of time between the first two verses of Genesis, which would allow for many of our current secular scientific explanations for creation to have occurred. And so according to the gap theory, Genesis 1 verse 2 refers to a chaotic state that the earth was in because of the rebellion of Satan and the other angels after the initial creation of the earth. However, it is actually, uh, actually it's a pretty shaky theory, at least as far as I'm concerned, because first of all, gap theorists explain that God cannot create darkness because he is light. So the idea is that the reason darkness was over the face of the deep was because Satan was cast out of heaven and evil had now come upon the earth. And one reason that theory uh, doesn't hold water, at least in my opinion, is because scripture doesn't support it. One example being Isaiah 45, 7, just a little further down in the passage we were just reading, where God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. In other words, God is sovereign over both the light and the darkness. And furthermore, there's no evil suggested in Genesis 1, verse 2 to begin with. It is simply an account of the creation of everything, including light and darkness by God, where the darkness isn't evil in and of itself. It is merely the absence of light. And so what the darkness does suggest in Genesis 1, verse 2 is incompleteness. Right, Because God was still creating, and at this point, he simply wasn't finished yet. And then the rest of verse 2, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The word face in the ancient Hebrew is panim. It means presence. So to complete the picture of the first two verses of Genesis 1, God has now created space and time and matter with all of these basic material elements in a watery mix sustained in the darkness of space. There was no form or structure yet, just the presence of all of this newly created matter all mixed up together in darkness and the Spirit of God was hovering. He was moving over all of it. <laughs> what an immensely powerful image as we see God poised to begin the next phase of his masterpiece, hovering over what had been created so far out of nothing. And again, this account of creation is affirmed later in Scripture when Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 5, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. So clearly there's scriptural evidence throughout the Bible that supports the Genesis account of creation as you would expect. And remember from last week, the Bible is made up of 66 individual books written in three different languages from 40 different authors over one and a half millennia over three different continents, all of which support the same message. So there's no circular argument when we use Scripture to support Scripture. And yet not only is there very clear scriptural evidence to support the Genesis account of creation, there's also scientific evidence to support the biblical account of creation. Obviously, uh, obviously we haven't the time 
in a sermon to thoroughly explore all of the scientific data in support of creationism or evolution, but we will take a look at some of the highlights. These are examples of arguments that are most commonly made by evolutionists that are not in fact supported in science. On the contrary, actually science, uh, which by the way, science is a part of God's creative process, you understand that, science actually supports biblical creation as you would expect it to, if it is the truth. First of all, one of the most common applications of scientific evidence that secular scientists use in an attempt to validate the theory of evolution is the fossil record. And yet what we have in the fossil record is the sudden appearance of complex fossilized life and systematic gaps between fossilized kinds in that record. In other words, according to the fossil record, according to the billions of known fossils today, all of the different kinds of animals seem to have just suddenly showed up one day. We don't have any evidence from the fossil record of any species evolving into a different species. That's key. Since Darwin proposed that evolution was continual, uh, right, a, 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 an ongoing process, out of those billions of fossils, wouldn't you think that there would be at least some that show a species in transition becoming a different species? Yet out of those billions of fossils, we don't have one. There's a quote from Institute for Creation Research. He actually cites many other sites within the scientific community. Although highly imaginative, transitional forms between man and ape-like creatures have been constructed by evolutionists based on very fragmentary evidence, the fossil record actually documents the separate origin of primates in general, monkeys, apes, and men. In fact, Lord Zuckerman, not a creationist, states that there are no fossil traces of a transformation from an ape-like creature to man. The fossils of Neanderthal man were once considered to represent a primitive subhuman, but these primitive features are now known to have resulted from nutritional deficiencies and pathological conditions. He is now classified as fully human. In other words, we don't have hard evidence in the fossil record that shows the evolution of animals from one species to another species. At best, we can speculate about adaptations within the same species, certainly which are extremely limited, by the way, but there is no proof of one species becoming another species. And furthermore, if evolution is true, then why don't we have animals walking around today that are in transition? Right? I can just tell you, as an avid hunter, I would personally love to see a part bear, part moose, part elk walking around in the woods beneath my tree stand. That'd be awesome. Hang that one on my wall. The fact is, a tremendous amount of faith is required to believe from the scientific evidence that we have in evolution. In fact, it takes far more belief in evolution than it does to believe some intelligent being created all of this in all of us, which is why atheism is just as much of a religion as any other. Because the most rational inference from the scientific evidence of the fossil record is that life was created and did not evolve. The fossil record supports the biblical account of each species being suddenly created far more than it does the evolution of all living things over hundreds of billions of years. Second, Evolutionists conclude that it would take billions of years in order for evolution to be valid. So the logical conclusion is that the earth must be billions of years old. 
again, uh, you know, there are so many arguments and so much evidence in science over the discussion of the age of the earth that we can't even begin to highlight all of them, let alone discuss them all today. But we'll look at one example. This is from Paul Ackerman, by the way, at uh, creationism.org, but you can find this information on many different sources. In the mid-1960s, as you know, we were preparing to land on the moon for the first time. And in the process of preparing the lunar lander for this landing, there was, a much, uh, there was much concern among scientists about cosmic dust on the surface of the moon. Although the Earth is a living planet with constant wind and water action to uh, mix and erode surface materials, the moon is dead and sterile. As the dust from space slowly filters down onto the moon's surface, there's no erosion to wash or blow it away, so it just sits there collecting deeper and deeper and deeper year after year after year. Since the scientists were convinced that the moon was at least 4.5 billion years old, this prospect of a slow but steady snow of space dust over that span of time gave them justifiable cause for concern. On the basis of certain measurements, it was estimated that there might be anywhere from 50 to 180 feet of loosely packed cosmic dust on the moon's surface. The threat was that our manned lunar lander would sink down into this loose layer and never be able to blast off for the return trip to Earth. We also wanted the first astronauts to plant the American flag on the moon, because why not? This was expected to be no problem since it could easily be tapped down into the cosmic dust layer. In a television interview, Bob Hope asked Neil Armstrong what was his greatest fear when he set that first historic foot on the moon's surface. Without hesitation, Armstrong responded that his greatest fear was the moon dust layer that scientists had told the astronauts to expect. So many precautions had been taken, additional expensive impact probes had been sent to check for safe landing sites, and most important of all, one very crucial addition to the landing vehicle was made. And we have a picture here. These huge duck feet landing pods were attached to extremely long legs on the lunar lander so that it would safely settle down without sinking into the expected dust layer. The great day came. The space vehicle roared into orbit and then out into the void across thousands of miles of distance it flew, finally taking position in orbit around the moon. The lander detached and as all of the Earth watched, the eagle slowly descended. July 20th, 1969, Neil Armstrong stepped foot on the moon. Armstrong tried to plant the American flag by hammering it down into the supposed billions of years of accumulated cosmic dust. He hammered, but the flag would not budge because the anticipated dust layer simply wasn't there. There was some dust there, but if the calculations indicating the rate of dust accumulation were accurate, there was not a billion years worth of dust, nor was there a million years worth of dust. There was, in fact, at best, only a few thousand years worth of dust on the moon's surface. The cosmic dust evidence revealed an intriguing possibility, he says, was this issue of how old things are not settled after all. Perhaps the creation was younger than some proposed. Creationists began to take another look at the evidence relating to this age issue and what they discovered is astounding. It appears that the creation is not vastly ancient as we have been taught from our earliest school days. In fact, it may be quite young, which would invalidate, of course, the theory of evolution because evolution relies upon billions of years to take place. 
Yet if an intelligent being created the earth, all of this could exist in a relatively short amount of time. The truth makes much more sense, doesn't it? Another example, the second law of thermodynamics refers to the universal uh, tendency for things on their own to mix with their surrounding environment uh, over time, becoming less ordered and eventually reaching what's called a steady state. So, for instance, a glass of hot water becomes room temperature. Buildings decay into rubble. Uh, the stars in the sky eventually burn out. However, the evolutionary scenario proposes that over time things on their own became more ordered and more structured. Somehow the energy of a Big Bang structured itself into stars, galaxies, planets, and living things, contrary to the second law of thermodynamics. It has been theorized that the energy of the sun was enough to overcome this tendency and allow for the formation of life on Earth. And yet, look, if lightning, one of the most powerful sources of energy in nature, if lightning strikes a mud puddle, all you end up with is a hot mud puddle. Right? And furthermore, if there are any tadpoles living in that mud puddle, science would guarantee that they're now extra crispy. The introduction of energy into an unorganized, lifeless mass without intelligent design cannot organize elements or create life. You understand our own science contradicts the myth of evolution. The truth makes so much more sense. Another example is the fact that there are dozens of parameters which are just right for life to exist on this planet. For example, if the earth were just a little closer to the sun, it would be too hot and the ocean's water would boil away. Any further away from the sun and the earth would be covered continually in ice. Earth's circular orbit to maintain a roughly constant temperature year-round. Its rotation speed to provide days and nights not too long or too short. Its tilt to provide seasons and the presence of the moon to provide tides which cleanse the oceans are just a few of many other examples. And yet the theory of evolution suggests that all of this happened by accident. But true science in no way supports that idea. Furthermore, many creatures on the earth produce asexually. In other words, they produce offspring by themselves without needing a mate. Why would animals abandon simpler asexual reproduction in favor of more costly and inefficient sexual reproduction? The, the truth is, sexual reproduction is a very complex process that is only useful if fully in place. For sexual reproduction to have evolved, complementary male and female sex organs and sperm and eggs and all of the associated biological machinery had to evolve in tandem. It defies the imagination. And what about the different parts of human beings? Body, mind, soul, spirit. Some of those parts, like the mind and the soul, are immaterial, but they're still very much a real part of you. Chemicals alone cannot explain self-awareness, creativity, reasoning, emotions, love and hate, sensations of pleasure and pain, possessing and remembering experiences, or the concept of free will. In truth, reason itself cannot be relied upon if it is based only on blind neurological events. No way. And yet evolution would suggest that all of these parts of us came about randomly and by accident. 
C.S. Lewis once wrote, if the solar system was brought about by an accidental collision, then the appearance of organic life on this planet was also an accident, and the whole evolution of man was an accident too. If so, then all our present thoughts are mere accidents, the accidental byproduct of the movement of atoms. And this holds for the thoughts of the materialists and astronomers as well as for anyone else's. But if their thoughts, i.e. of materialism and astronomy, are merely accidental byproducts, why should we believe them to be true? I see no reason for believing that one accident should be able to give me a correct account of all the other accidents. It's like expecting that the accidental shape taken by the splash when you upset a milk jug should give you a correct account of how the jug was made and why it was upset. That's brilliant, and it is true. The scientific evidence that we have in regard to the origins of the earth and life on this earth is far more supportive of intelligent design by an omnipotent God than it is of the theory of evolution. By far. The truth makes much more sense, doesn't it? We're just scratching the surface here. The question is, really, what do you believe about creation? Because what you believe about these two verses profoundly affects your view of all of this and all of us. In fact, it determines the value that you place on human life itself, both yours and others. So what do you believe? about creation. Clearly, we have scriptural evidence for biblical creation. We also have copious amounts of scientific evidence for biblical creation. And the last bit of evidence that we're going to talk about today is really nothing more than common sense. Because the truth makes so much more sense. And interestingly enough, the Bible even addresses this. Romans 1, 18 through 22. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. In other words, everything that Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2 says about him have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, like you and me. So that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Some of the most intelligent scientists, historians, teachers, philosophers and doctors claim there is no God. It sounds like verse 21 to me. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. You've probably uh, heard the analogy that if you stand on the street and look up at a building and said to these same wise people that there was an explosion billions of years ago, and over those billions of years that followed, that building and all of its order and structure and function, all of its makeup and design, the way that everything fits together, all of the brick and mortar and glass and steel, it all came together on its own over billions of years and formed that building any sane person would tell you you're crazy and yet if you explained that an intelligent person designed that building and made a plan and then built it 
that same person would say that makes perfect sense. Why? Because it is, in fact, common sense. Likewise, with a watch, uh, William Paley, the well-known 18th century philosopher and minister, is famous for his analogy of a watch to creation, the same idea. He says, what if you look at your wristwatch and someone told you that billions of years ago there was an explosion and all of the elements of steel and crystal and plastic began to come together and form over billions of years until they formed into small gears and hands and a perfectly smooth crystal and a locking band and it all came together on its own and formed the watch that keeps perfect time on your wrist, you would say, you're crazy. But if you said a watchmaker, someone with the understanding, the wisdom, the ability to build that watch, made a plan and designed it and built it, you would say that makes perfect sense. Let me ask you something. How much more infinitely more complex and intricate is the earth and everything in it than a watch? or a building. Just the human body is a wonder in the way that everything works together, yet the wise men of our age are content to accept the notion that there was an explosion somewhere in space, and all of this just happened on its own, by chance, over hundreds of billions of years. Yet the idea that an intelligent being designed all of this and all of us and made a plan for all of it and created all of it, that idea is utterly ridiculous to them and unacceptable. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. God has clearly revealed himself through his creation since the beginning of time for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. The truth is we have no excuse. What we do have is common sense. Actually, it is an innate sense that God has instilled in each one of us that all of this in all of us is no accident. Clearly, obviously, someone with understanding and ability is responsible for all of this and all of us. And if you believe that the first two verses of the Bible are true, then you know exactly who that someone is. Elohim, the great I am. In the beginning, God, the great I am, created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, was hovering over the face of the waters. John 1, 1 through 3 echoes these verses in Genesis and includes Jesus Christ the Son. In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And what do you believe about creation? Because according to the Bible... According to scientific evidence and according to common sense, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created all of this and all of us. And here's the most amazing part of it all. The fact that an all-powerful, eternally existent, majestic, righteous, holy, just, all-knowing God who created the heavens and the earth is intimately and passionately in love with you. 
Why? Because according to the first two verses of the Bible, you're no accident. There's absolutely nothing that is random about your life. No, you are in fact the very crown of his creation, created in his own image. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The theory of evolution, it seeks to destroy any foundation for creation that involves a higher power, an intelligent being, and more specifically, it attempts to invalidate the righteous, holy, powerful, and loving God of the Bible. Why? Well, because if we can remove God from the equation, then we can live however we want to. We can do whatever we want to. We can believe whatever we want to without regard to how it may affect our our lives or the lives of other people. If we are not God's creation, then we can put ourselves above him and everyone else in our own eyes without moral conflict because there is no intrinsic value in human beings if all of this and all of us are nothing more than a colossal accident. I'm telling you, it is the very height of hubris, the great arrogance of mankind to think that we can erase the God of the Bible, that we can erase the God of science, that we can erase the God of common sense from the hearts and minds of humanity in order to live however we choose without any inherent responsibility to a higher power or anyone else on this earth. But I'll tell you what I'm really interested in today in what you believe about creation. Because listen, if it is anything other than what the Bible teaches us in the first two verses of Genesis, it isn't because of the evidence. It is in truth because you do not want to submit your life to a holy God. Because once you accept that all of this and all of us were formed, fashioned, and created by a higher power as the evidence clearly suggests, well then you have no choice but to face the reality that you now have a profound responsibility to him and to the rest of humanity and you'd better believe that's going to disrupt the plans that you've made for yourself. Yet at the end of the day, I can't make you believe that. And God won't. Because the choice is yours and yours alone. To continue to stick your head in the sand and pretend that what the Bible teaches us is not true, which doesn't make it any less truthful, or to accept what his word says about creation, that you were knitted together in your mother's womb by a God who loves you so much that he allowed his own son to die for you so that you could have a relationship with him. What you believe about creation, you see, it not only determines what you believe about God, it also determines what you believe about yourself and other people. And by the way, this isn't just for those who are not following Christ today. If you're a Christian who is losing or has lost hope for something in your life, then you don't actually believe that these two verses are true either. Because if you did, you would understand that there is always hope in the one who created you. So what do you believe about creation? In fact, just take a look around. 
take a good long look at the people sitting around you. Do you honestly believe this is all some kind of random accident? No way. You are not an accident. You are the crown of God's creation, which is all the evidence you should need to believe in Him. Let's pray.